You're listening to the best of The Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now your host, Michelle Miao. It's Michelle Miao. You're listening to The Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Mm-hmm. Today's show is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This entire week, plus next week and during the holidays, uh, we are doing special interviews with LGBTQI seniors. And this is a program that we've partnered with, with Open House, uh, Open House here in San Francisco, which is a nonprofit organization that enables San Francisco Bay Area LGBT seniors to overcome the unique challenges they face as they age by providing housing, direct services, and community programs. And so what we're trying to do in partnership with Open House is also raise funds to uh, support LGBTQI seniors. So you can head to openhouse-sf.org to donate a non, uh, you know, tax-deductible donation today. Our first interview is with BJ Stiles. And uh, BJ, welcome to the program. Thank you, Michelle. And so sorry you had to start with sadness. That's uh, a difficult thing to experience during holidays it is isn't it but uh but uh, but at the same time you know i think that it, i'm i feel so lucky to be able to be here today to talk about sadness because i think sadness also during the holidays while we don't want to talk about it um sadness does impact many of us especially those in the community and that's part of the reason why i think being open about sadness or isolation or loneliness or not having that traditional holiday you know spirit it, it's okay too as long as we can support one another well and particularly the holidays though a lot of it is about partying and giving and receiving gifts i think the biggest gift i can give to myself and my husband and my family is gratitude. Yeah, absolutely. We are grateful. And I'm grateful for you for being here on this program today. So thank you, BJ. Thank you. So BJ, let's, uh, this, all this, you know, half hour that we're going to spend with you, it's really all about you. Um, I want to, you know, tell stories of incredible people in our community, but, you know, not, not the ones who are necessarily uh, out there uh, getting bogged down by paparazzi or <laughs> anything like that, because I think the most special people are people like you and I. So let's start by talking about your childhood, you know, and, um, and, and talk to us about where you grew up and, uh, and what that was like. It's a very simple story, Michelle. I was born in a farmhouse in rural Texas in the depth of the Depression. I am the second of four sons, and um, it was a pretty austere time for my family. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, are you one of how many siblings? I have three brothers, all living. Wow, three brothers, so no girls, but three brothers. And so when you, I mean, you know, a lot of us who are LGBTQI, we had always known we were different. We just kind of, you know, each of us have a different pl- uh, time in our lives in which we made sense of it. So for you, um, you know, how young were you when you, you, you knew you were different? Different I as, knew yeah. from the very outset that I was special, and I didn't understand myself enough to realize the diversity of being special. The answer is uh, I was 
straight and happily married for 25 years, father of two now adult daughters. And it was not until my late 40s that I began to really understand that I was missing part of my life. And because I had begun to be uh, actively involved in HIV-AIDS efforts, it didn't take me very long to realize that I was in pretty deep denial about my orientation. And so at age 49, uh, I divorced, I came out of the closet, I quit my job, and I began my journey of uh, living and feeling like a gay man. Wow. Well, did did religion ever have a factor in terms of, you know, feeling comfortable in, in being yourself prior to coming out? No, it was quite the opposite. Religion, uh, in my particular experience, was a confining and um, guilt-ridden experience. And um, I think religion was part of the boundaries that kept me from really facing myself until middle age. And, you know, and, and uh, as far as your family members goes, three brothers, you know, your parents and growing up in Texas, um, what was it like when you when you came out to them? Um, it was a natural thing to do. We, my family has always um, been trained and uh, guided to, to tell the truth, to be honest, to not uh, not be dishonest with other people. And when I finally accepted myself uh, sharing that insight uh, and change with my siblings uh, was a natural thing to do. At the point that this occurred, my father was dead. My mother was living uh, alone on the farm. And I very quickly introduced her to my then partner, who is now my husband, and she embraced him very graciously. That is so good to hear. I mean, oftentimes we hear of uh, stories of some of us who, who come out, especially if you didn't live in a huge urban city. Um, you know, many of our family members have a difference of opinion about it, uh, especially at a different time than now, right? Yeah, and I, you know, because I was middle-aged, I had, uh, I had a pretty long career professionally, and in my life, people knew me for what my values were, mm-hmm. and that um, that part of what I had come to terms with is that I was being dishonest to myself and not being, not accepting myself and not living accordingly. And so, particularly my family and my very close friends really could only judge me by everything they knew about me, and they had a high respect for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to, to touch on, you know, um, sometimes, like, for example, for myself, right? I, I didn't know that I was gay until I had my first experience, which was 19 years old, way later. Some people, um, you know, knew they were gay uh, because of an attraction that they had at a very young age. D- did you ever have an attraction growing up in Texas and just not know that it was an attraction to um, someone of the same sex? Oh, looking backwards, of course. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's part of the awkwardness uh, when I share my story with uh, new friends. And they say, well, gosh, you know, 
when did you know when did you know you were gay and i said well in hindsight i knew from the outset it's just that i wasn't accepting it mm -hmm. particularly in my growing early growing up years uh i preferred um working with men i preferred male teachers i preferred male companions um uh, and a lot of my basic behavior I did all the girl things. I love to cook. I love flowers. I love fashion. <laughs> so the irony was that you know I think I think my my uh, aunts and my grandmother and my mother probably very early thought, well, you know, BJ is a little bit different. He doesn't do all the things that boys normally do. Um, so I kind of lived in the dual world of sexual behavior. Prior to San Francisco, uh, you know, did you live anywhere else other than Texas? Oh, yes. After graduate school in uh, SMU, I was then married. We moved to Nashville, Tennessee. We lived in Nashville for uh, 13 years. I then We then moved to Washington, D.C., and I was living in Washington when I divorced and came out. And I lived in Washington, D.C., for uh, over 30 years. D.C., it's a, uh, it, I love D.C., and there's a cool, you know, a, a, a neighborhood, an LGBTQ neighborhood, but the funny thing about D.C., in my opinion, you know, are the, uh, the, the gays in politics. Um, they're, to me, <laughs> very buttoned up, and so I wonder if you have any stories of, you know, of D.C. Well, uh, yeah, I, it, it, this was the 19... The 1970s, the 1980s, uh, and it was a it was a it was a different town than it is today. Um, quieter, duller, hypocritical around ethics and sexuality. And yet, when I did come out, because you know, because I came out and I told people what my story was, uh, I had any number of people of similar age uh, who wanted to talk directly and extensively about how they were trying to manage being, appearing to be straight and behaving straight, but not really doing so. So by my early coming out years, I, I, I guess I wouldn't call it counseling, but I sure spent a lot of time listening to uh, mostly men who were talking to me about how they wished they could do what I had done. Mm -hmm. uh, well, it doesn't take much. You just have to look yourself in the mirror and say, "Hey, I'm gay." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I, I love your message, and uh, it empowers us of the, uh, in the community who, who might be on the fence or who feel unsupported. And sometimes you got to make that that leap. Um, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, I want to dive into you know the post coming out. Um, years of, of your life and also being involved in uh, HIV activism, especially in D.C. So don't go away, okay? I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> the Michelle Meow Show continues right after this. Don't go away. You are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the Michelle Meow Show.
Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say, I do. Especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. You are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us, and happy holidays, I should say. We're just a few days away from from Christmas, so Merry Christmas to those who celebrate Christmas. Uh, We are are doing a special program in partnership with Open House, a nonprofit organization right here in San Francisco that supports LGBTQI seniors, and uh, they do that by offering housing, direct services, and community programs. I just feel like during a time like this, especially in our community, the LGBTQI community, uh, there's a, there are some of us who don't have homes to go to or uh, don't have holiday corporate parties to go th- to and all that stuff. So one thing that I thought of is that um, we should absolutely offer support to one another uh, regardless of age, uh, but definitely specifically the LGBTQI senior community. And so our guest today is BJ Styles, who's telling us a story of his life, um, and uh, we are up at, to the point where he came out and he's living in D.C. And so, B.J., you mentioned earlier that uh, you did some work around HIV activism in D.C. is where, you know, a lot of activism um, uh, was going on, especially in the 90s, in, in, in asking for the government to react to the AIDS epidemic. Uh, tell us some, some, some stories, perhaps, of uh, that time of your life. Well, I think the important thing is to remember that uh, in the early years of HIV, domestically particularly, uh, in addition to the horrors of the disease itself, we were all were uh, enduring the stigma and the discrimination that was associated even with the word AIDS. And so a lot of the things that... that um, we friends needed to pay attention to was the degree to which uh, others were rejected by family, by church, uh, many of whom uh, were no longer able to work. And um, because I did not have a background in health sciences or medicine at all, I really started looking at the social aspect of living with HIV disease and particularly was concerned that 
the behavior in the workplace was very traumatic for so many people. And um, so I began to work with employers, particularly large corporations, trade associations, labor unions, etc., to think about and uh, do something constructive about dealing with AIDS in the workplace. How did uh, HIV-AIDS personally impact you, um, and if you want to share? Well, I think if you knew anything at all at that point in time, (laughs) you were very anxious about your own behavior and Mm -hmm. whether you might already be infected and not know it. And if you were not infected, uh, what you needed to do uh, beyond abstinence to, to not run the risk. So... You know, early on, the anxiety about, you know, every spot that occurred on your skin, every little mild cough, every little thought of fever, uh, you know, you were <laughs> you were catatonic with fear like, oh, my God, you know, I, I have AIDS. Um, more, more importantly, it also caused me to think carefully about the people I knew in light, and particularly the men that I either knew to be gay or I thought were gay. And uh, so I began to intensify my my friendship and my camaraderie with um, gay men who were already quite sick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, you came out later in life, um, and, uh, you know, you just talked about HIV, AIDS, even impacting the decisions you made in your social circle, uh, that on top of coming out later in life, uh, that also had impacted your your dating life. I don't know if you, you mentioned a partner earlier. Um, did you have a long-term partner by this moment, this time? Uh, that took uh, a little while. When I actually divorced and came out, uh, I lived very quietly for, I don't know, six months or so, um, very unsure about, uh, about ever having any kind of relationship again. Um, and a very good friend of mine at work, um, whom I knew to be gay and I was a social friend of him and his partner. Um, he said, you know, BJ, I think you would benefit by going to something that is offered here in in uh, Washington by the Gay Men's Counseling Collective, which is a six-week coming-out course. And I kind of shrugged my shoulders. Oh, Mike, I don't need to do that. And he looked at me rather sternly, and he said, well, your friends know you do need it. So <laughs> uh, I did. I, I He said, do me a favor. Go to I'll, I'll identify a particular group for you to work with. And at least go to one session. And if you don't like it, that's okay. And I did, and um, it was a very helpful thing to do. You know, in 1983 and 84, um, you know, there there was a gay venue in the greater Washington area, but it was sort of off the side. You know, there was the area around DuPont Circle where you knew you could go to the bookstore and cruise, and there were there were bars, but I was a little reluctant to, you know, mm-hmm. get out there and uh, start cruising or dating. And the course really helped me do that. Um, and I met uh, any number of people in that process 
who became very close friends. So I'd say the nice thing about um, being out or being open about being out uh, in an urban area is that there are organizations and resources that will answer all your questions and sometimes open doors to meeting people and dating. Mm-hmm. What year did you uh, did you come to San Francisco? I officially retired from my last uh, job in 1999. My then partner, who is now my husband, is younger than I. He, uh, upon anticipating my retirement, said he wanted to leave government where he had worked for 10 years and he wanted to return to the private sector. He's an architect. And uh, in a few months' time, word spread and he was invited to come out to San Francisco to be interviewed by an architectural firm over in uh, Emeryville. And he came out and they liked each other and he called me and said, hey, I've signed a job. I'm I'm moving to California. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So it, it was it was a it was a fine way to make the transition. Gave him a full year uh, to live in San Francisco, try out his new job, and meet a close-up shop in Washington, and uh, and then come out. So when I came out as a retired person, what I didn't really know much about was the degree to which in the in the gay world there are many people who uh, are attracted cross-generationally younger men to older men older men to younger men etc and i knew that because my partner is younger than i um much younger than i and when I came to San Francisco, I realized that there's a whole network of people in San Francisco in which uh, younger men are looking for older men. So that was a big surprise for me in moving to San Francisco is is how many opportunities there were socially as well as sexually to meet younger men. How has San Francisco changed for you in the, you know, 10 plus years you've lived here now and especially in the gay scene? Well, the city itself is getting much younger, uh, and the social life in the city is much more vibrant. It's very expensive, but it's also very vibrant. Um, the old-timers tell me that the biggest difference is uh, visually in, in the Castro area, that, you know, that in the last 15 years, people in the Castro um, are more diverse, many more straight people, many more young families, both straight and gay with children, uh, and so little physical evidence of the uh, horrors of gay disease. Um, And of course, I think the worst part of being in San Francisco is the horrible difference in cost and the degree to which younger people who move here in their first job, they really can't afford anything. And so they have to live almost like students. Uh, you know, many people in a small apartment sharing kitchen, bathroom, etc. And uh, it's very tough financially. Uh, I don't know how people, uh, lower income people, actually do it. 
mm-hmm. really tough. And when we talk about the LGBTQI community specifically and aging, um, you know, what are your feelings about that? I know that we're a little, yeah, we, well, we've had a late start to the, the race, right? When everyone else, the straight community or even culturally speaking, African-Americans, Asian-Americans um, have built resources for their aging community. Uh, yeah, you know, I've, I feel like we have very few resources when it comes to the LGBTQI aging community. But what are your thoughts? I think the greatest resource we have is each other. Uh, we went to the Christmas concert, holiday concert last week of the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus. There are now more than 300 singers in the chorus. And visually, I would say more than half of all the men in the gay men's chorus are over age 50. So I I really think our greatest resource um, is each other in terms of friendships, support systems, uh, finding uh, out where to go find uh, a doctor, where to look for housing, Um, and uh, that's, you know, that's, that's the benefit and the joy of living in San Francisco, the incredible range of resources that are all around us, many of which are free and or inexpensive. Do you have any fears at all as a member of the senior community and the LGBTQI community and seeing the, the changes that San Francisco has experienced? Oh, I think... Uh, <laughs> I think the greatest fear right now is simply political. Uh, Mm -hmm. We have some incredible idiots who are seeking (laughs) to be president of the country. I love it. Yes, that's right. And, and, uh, you know, I'm kind of really involved in listening to all the debates and trying to sort out what these men and women really believe. So I, I I, I think the biggest anxiety... I wouldn't call it fear, but anxiety is that in the campaigning and politicking in 2016, um, a lot of the ignorance and a lot of the bigotry that is present in our in our world is going to be expressed. And I don't think we're free of that here in San Francisco. I mean, I, I think there are pockets of fear and uh, ignorance uh, about race and gender, and uh, I, I think that will be expressed when people go to the voting booth. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, we have such a, an impressive array of gay, lesbian, and, and transgendered people uh, already in public life and running for public office that we have choices and we have people to debate each other rationally and carefully. So I'd, I'd say fundamentally I think as as I age and as I deal with other aging people, um, particularly because I participate in, uh, in cancer support groups, it's really the economics and the potential policies um, that can emerge when people get defensive and fearful and angry. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. BJ, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today and for helping everyone out there uh, educate themselves about the LGBTQI community and also giving exposure to uh, the LGBTQI senior community. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. We will continue the show with our partnership uh, with the, with Open House here in, in San Francisco. Don't forget, you can make a tax-deductible donation right now by visiting openhouse-sf.org. Don't go away. We have more stories. You are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the Michelle Meow Show. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years. And uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody. And that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, the ethics of Oasis. Is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need to, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? This has always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people and so it seems like that works you know I would say to young kids you know just kind of form your own identity and uh, and you know don't let others dictate how you should behave or think uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis if you want to see drag we've got that for you if you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties we have that for spotlight you spotlight on success and achievement Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. You are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. It's Monday, December 22nd. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. We can be proud of the LGBT older adults like BJ Styles, uh, the story that we just told right before the break, who had given us the freedom and pride we feel today. It's not too much to say that there are extended or our chosen family, but are also our LGBT pioneers. We owe them so much. They were at the forefront of our founding LGBT rights movements. Unfortunately, many of our LGBT seniors are aging in isolation and most without children or other biolo- or their biological children. So that's the reason why we're doing this right now, partnering with Open House. Open House is located here in San Francisco and provides resources to LGBTQI seniors. So please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Open House right now by visiting openhouse-sf.org. 
Our next guest to, to tell us her entire life story, which I think is going to be incredible and uh, profound, is Sonny Zambino. Sonny, welcome to the program. Thank you, Michelle. My, my, Thank you my so much for agreeing to do this and uh, and participate with us. And I, I was joking around in which I said, <laughs> you're going to tell us your entire life story. Are you up for it? <laughs> Well, we'll see if we can cram it in here. All right. So, uh, uh, go ahead. My name is pronounced Sonny, S-O-N-N-I. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you so much That's for the right. corrections. Sure. Sonny, right? Right. All right, Sonny. So, let's start with uh, your childhood. I'd like to start there, as I think childhood memories are, are so <laughs> interesting. They can be incredible. They can be sad. <laughs> but they tell so much about you. So, where did you grow up? Well, uh, if we go back 63 years, I grew up in a small town in western Pennsylvania called Grove City. It's a small liberal arts college there, um, aligned with the Presbyterian Church. Um, and at that time, when I was born in 1952, there was a diesel manufacturing uh, plant there called the Cooper Bessemer Corporation. So the town of 10,000 had... Not only a lot of churches, but um, a lot of white collar and and blue collar people. So it was uh, it was quite a nice town. But to grow up in, I always say that the best college education I had was the high school education in my at my public school. Just for first rate uh, teachers. Hmm. What was family like? Life? Uh, are you? Do you have any siblings? Um. I, I do, but that's an, that's another whole story. I, my my uh, sister, who I've been looking for for 42 years, I just found about a year and a half ago. So, <laughs> wow, yeah. Wow. So, so like I said, that's a that's a whole that's a whole another story. Okay, we'll try to navigate this as easy as possible. I mean, we have yeah. half, an, half an hour, and uh, I feel like I'm sitting around. Um, you know, a holiday table with some hot chocolate and and listening yeah, I, to you. Yes. Uh-huh. So 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 talk to us about you know. Um, I don't I don't I don't like to ask like when you knew you were gay because I kind of feel like as as gay people or queer people, we always kind of knew. It's just a matter of when we articulated it. But uh, what do you think? Well, I I knew from an early age because uh, I was. Uh, looking at some photos when my uh, sister was here visiting in October that um, there was a photo of me at probably four years old with uh, little blue jeans on and a blue jean jacket and uh, guns and a cowboy hat. So (laughs) 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 uh, my mother, you know, insisted I have long hair and I hated it and I hated, you know, dressing up for Easter and Christmas and all the holidays where you're paraded around in front of the of the friends and family. So I knew from a pretty early age that um, I really, you know, the boys had more fun. There was just something about mm-hmm. the girly things. I just wasn't, uh, it just doesn't, didn't do anything for me, you know. So when my friends were getting Barbie dolls, you know, I got a Zippy the Monkey yeah. Uh, which was uh, which was a stuffed animal that my my kindergarten teacher had. Um, so that was kind of my my early childhood was um, you know in a in a neighborhood growing up with just lots of kids my age and everyone played together. 
we rode bikes and, you know, roller skates that had the steel wheels and you had a key. Did you ever, uh, uh, did you ever get bullied or get into fights or neighborhood fights and things like that? Well, I did get uh, bullied because I was, uh, you know, I was a chubby kid, so, um, um, I was bullied that way. Uh, once I got into high school, I had lost weight. Uh, so I was, I, I knew that there was something different about me, but I did date uh, in high school, and it wasn't until I went to college and uh, actually was the accompanist for a local production of Cabaret where I met some gay men. I, you know, the town I grew up in was really quite uh, closeted. I didn't know any gay people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Until I went to college, I thought maybe I had met a couple, but they were were gay men when I was you know when I was growing up. So when I got to college, I met some gay men who took me to my first gay bar. And I was just talk, telling the story the other night to Marcy Edelman, the founder of Open House, that um, as soon as I walked in the place, I just felt completely at home. Even though you had to bring a buzzer to get in, and there was you know some goon standing there at the door checking ID, and it was owned by, by the mafia. Um, it was, I just felt just completely at home there. And, and so, you know, at, at home, because you're with uh, gay men, were there any women there? I mean, did they, there, did they also go to gay bars? Many. There weren't yeah. many. Um, there were, uh, you know, on their, their busiest nights, which was Wednesday, Saturday, and Sunday. There were there was a drag show every Wednesday and Sunday. So a lot of people came out for these shows, um, and that was um, that was my hangout for the next uh, two or three years. So I did get to meet some of the women in the community. I was the only one attending the university at the time that was going to this this particular bar. So. Uh, it was hard for me to uh, meet meet women. Those women who I did meet were already in a in a clique, so to speak. So it was kind of hard to break into that, and they were all on different schedules than I was. So it made it difficult to um, to hang with them. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. When did you have your first experience with uh, a woman? It was uh, it was late. Uh, 1970, it was December of 1971, and uh, it was with the older sister of a, of a woman I graduated high school with, so um, she had gone to, she was two years, she is two years older than I am, I'm assuming she's still, she's still around, um, and uh, her sister who I hung around with in high school, uh, had told her older sister that I was be- I had been seen at gay bars. Mm. And so uh, Jackie one one day uh, came up to me at Christmas time, and she said, uh, I'm here, I hear that you're gay. And I said, well, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. She said, well, I hear you, you know, you've been hanging out with these people. And I said, well, yes, I have, but I haven't had a relationship yet. Well, she took my hand, 
and said, what are you doing tomorrow morning, which was a Sunday, and I said, nothing, and she said, pick me up, I want to take you to Butler, Pennsylvania, it's about 20 miles away, so I picked her up, we drove to, to Butler, and she introduced me to a woman who um, taught uh, um, I don't know, business accounting at a community college in, in Butler, and... Uh, the two of them took turns of dance, slow dancing with me. Wow. <laughs> While we had brunch. And by the time we left there, um, I, I knew I was a lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> it felt great, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Michelle Meow, we're speaking with Sonny Zambino, who's telling us her story. Um, and sharing with us during this holiday season, we're doing a special program with Open House in which we're sharing stories from LGBTQI seniors. And, and part of it, you know, part of it is, is education and exposure and making sure that we don't forget um, those of us who are, are pioneers, but also expose, you know, the issues that LGBTQI seniors face um, in hopes that we'll all come together to support our future. Um, Sonny, so... You're getting to the juicy part here in which, you know, you left that dance <laughs> knowing you're a lesbian. My guess is that you did establish a relationship with, with one of them or, or both of them. <laughs> yes, uh, with, the, with, the older, with the older sister, uh, but, but not the woman who was, uh, uh, who was the uh, professor at the, at the local community college. Mm-hmm. In fact, I never saw her again. Uh, so uh, Jackie and I had, uh, because we lived in uh, different towns, we didn't see each other uh, very often. And as I look back on it, it was, um, you know, it was it was the, I guess if it for for a first encounter to be bad or good, I would have to say it was good. But I, you know, I fell too I fell too hard for her. Even though I knew um, she also had this side that, um, uh, where she had men in her life and men that weren't good for her. So, um, you know, after a year or so, we just didn't, we didn't see each other anymore. And I did meet uh, more people where I was going uh, to college. And, and I, uh, a group of us, uh, finally there were, three or four other people at the university that, you know, we all saw each other at the bar one night and said, let's meet outside of the bar. So we did, and and at that time, uh, John Lindsay was the mayor of New York City, and he he had appointed a, a Dr. Howard Brown to be head of the health department in New York. And Howard was the first, openly gay man, gay person, uh, to be to be part of a large uh, city. Um, and he was, uh, you know, the administration, the large city administration. So um, he became kind of the poster guy for the gay liberation fronts mm-hmm. in the country. And... Um, me and a small group of people, we used, to, we used to drive to Kent State, which was about an hour and a half away, to the Gay Liberation Front meetings. Um, and 
we decided we were going to start a gay liberation front at Youngstown State University. This was in Youngstown, Ohio. Um, I was in, uh, they have a music school there, so I was piano performance major. So, um, so Howard Brown was making, um, you know, the rounds of, of these gay liberation fronts in the, in the Northeast. So we were able to, um, not only get him to come to Youngstown, Youngstown, but we also managed to have a TV station cover it. So it was the first time that anything uh, gay or lesbian, and I say gay or lesbian because we weren't known as LGBT back then. Right. It was right. the first time that there had been any positive exposure of gays and lesbians, you know, on the local television. It was really a, a big deal. Um, so in that corner of Northeast Ohio, there were in almost every town you could find a small a small gay bar. Now some of them weren't. Um, there was one particular one in Akron called Mothers, and the guy that owned the place just didn't like having women there, you know. And and um, it was really a gay men's. Um, Bar. Green Day was really yeah. a was really a, it was a it was a gay men's atmosphere everywhere that you went. Um, there it wasn't until um, I went to school at uh, Carnegie Mellon for a while that you know I, there was a large women's only bar there, which is known as the as the twelve oh nine. So <laughs> if you saw someone and thought they were a lesbian, you would say to them. Does twelve oh nine mean anything to you? <laughs> wow. Well, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna pause right here. We're going to take a quick short break, but when we come back okay. we'll continue our discussion and you'll tell more stories of your life when we come back. Don't go away. You are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the Michelle Meow Show. It's Michelle Meow, you're listening to the Best of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. 
be a part of the conversation. Learn more at CommonwealthClub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. You are listening to a rebroadcast of an earlier version of the Michelle Meow Show. It's Michelle Meow. You're listening to the Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. Happy holidays. I guess I should say uh, specifically Merry Christmas to those who are celebrating in a few days here, a couple days. Uh, we are are producing a special series here right before uh, New Year's, and, and we're airing uh, interviews with LGBTQI seniors as a partnership with Open House. Open House is a nonprofit organization right here in San Francisco that provides resources to the LGBTQI uh, community, the senior community. And so for me... You know, we should we should not forget that the that during the holidays, not all of us have families to go to or uh, company parties to attend, and LGBT seniors uh, oftentimes are aging in isolation, and so hopefully these stories will empower you to do more than just uh, think about aging, but but be active in supporting the senior community so that we'll have a brighter future. Our guest today is Sonny Zambino, and we're talking about her life, and she's taking me into a journey. Um, <laughs> uh, Sonny, I'd love to turn our attention in the second half of our interview uh, to when you got to San Francisco. What year was that? Oh, that was, uh, that was 1976. Um, I, had, uh, I had been a, uh, an apprentice, a stage technician on a summer stock circuit um, in... Um, in Ohio and Michigan in the summer of 1976. So um, this was a, I don't know if you're familiar with what summer stock is, but uh, back then it was um, great theaters in large cities like uh, Akron, Ohio, Pittsburgh, uh, Flint, Michigan, Columbus, Ohio. And uh, during the summer there would be stars who would... uh, sign up for plays or do their acts. Uh, so I, just for instance, I spent a week with Joan Rivers and uh, heard it, she was doing her act with uh, Peter Marshall, who sang, and uh, Ricardo Maltabon and uh, Carol, Carol Lawrence, uh, Harvey Corman. I mean, there were just uh, people in and out of the theater uh, for, I think it was, eight weeks. So um, there were, I think, eight of us uh, who were apprentice stage technicians, so we learned how to build complete uh, traveling sets, uh, even from, you know, starting with building the flats and stretching stretching the, the muslin over the frame. So um, the man who was the set designer also produced uh, theater for children here in California. So we, he asked me to uh, come to California and be the uh, his, the musical director for his uh, uh, for his theater company. So it was uh, Circle Star Theater, and it was in San Carlos. On the weekends, they had theater for for children, and he he and his partner Jeffrey 
uh, were the producers. So that's what brought me to California. I was paid $150 a week. Wow. In 1976. Um, and uh, lived in Redwood City. At the end of the first season, uh, he couldn't afford to produce any musicals the next season. It, it was a union house. Um, and so I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do, but I uh, met a woman who was an officer in the Navy. So uh, I got into a relationship with her, and she got had orders uh, to be sent to Hawaii, and she said, do you want to come with me? So I went to Hawaii. I <laughs> <laughs> um, stayed for nine months. I came back. I kind of got island fever. And, um, gosh, I was only back a few months when I was at a bar in San Francisco called Scott's, which was um, right at the DuBose Triangle. It was somebody's garage actually, and uh, on the bathroom door was one of these tear-off sheets, and it said, do you play a musical instrument? Were you in marching band in high school or chorus? If so, I'm putting together uh, uh, a gay and lesbian marching band, and so I tore off the number. And so I went to the very first meeting of the San Francisco Gay Freedom Day, gay Freedom Day Marching Band and Twirling Corps. Uh, so I was a charter. I was a charter member of the band, and uh, I played French horn. And uh, John Sims, who founded all what we know as the uh, gay lag, gay and uh, lesbian musical associations, uh, said to me, "Well, he didn't need French horn players. He needed trumpet players." So I went out. I bought a trumpet. Learned to play the trumpet. A little different than French horn. And uh, in 19, 1978, there we were, a hundred over a hundred strong, turning turning the corner from uh, from Spear Street on the market playing California. Here we come. Mm. And '78 was uh, was also the year that Harvey Milk was assassinated. I, I, yes. I wonder, you know, how that impacted your role with the Gay Lesbian Freedom Band, and also you as an individual as a lesbian. Well, it was devastating. It was just devastating. Um, I hadn't uh, been here long uh, from Hawaii. I'd only been back maybe eight or ten months, so I was, um, you know, still forming a circle of of my own community. Um, and it was uh, it was just unbelievable to me, growing up, you know, the small town of Pennsylvania, that somebody could just go and shoot the mayor and, uh, you know, and shoot the icon um, of the Ellen, of the lesbian and gay movement. Um, yes, the band, uh, the band in the gay men's chorus, and um, I was also the conductor of the San Francisco Lesbian Chorus, which was started under that umbrella. Um, you know, it was all very, very sorrowful. So, yeah. Yeah, um, I I can only imagine I would be so so afraid. Uh, unfortunately, we're running up against time. See, I, this is what happens. I get sucked into these <laughs> interviews, and I just want to sit I'm here. I'm getting that, yeah, that was just the beginning of my activism. Yeah, uh, well, two more years to go. 
We're going to have to ask you to come back. You're going to have to be a best friend of this program because uh, I just could listen to your stories all day long. Um, yeah, before we let you go, though, I do want to ask, I mean, you know, you're, you're here now in San Francisco and have seen and experienced so much and so much has changed. You know, what do you want the new emerging people who are, who are coming here to San Francisco, who are living here, who are working here, what do you want them to know, and especially, you know, as your perspective uh, as an LGBTQI senior? I think it's important for uh, new people uh, to know, to find out uh, what it was like for, for when I came to California, because a lot of me and the LGBT people my age took the time to to learn about what happened in the 50s and 60s in San Francisco. Um, you know, you just, you can, most any bar you walk into now in San Francisco, you know, you can hold hands and kiss and do pretty much whatever you want. Of course, that that wasn't possible. So um, I, don't, I, I don't want new people coming out to California or just coming out in general not to take everything for granted. Mm-hmm. A lot, there, there was a lot of uh, blood and tears shed uh, through the years for the movement, um, and in, including, you know, our our dear friends who who have died of AIDS. So it's uh, it's I'm I'm glad it's much uh, I'm glad it's much freer now. And being on the board of uh, NCLR and Open House, um, you know, I'm still aware that there's so much discrimination happening across the country. Just because marriage um, was passed doesn't mean that women still aren't losing their kids, uh, you know, to uh, to a husband who's looking for revenge. And um, uh, there's just all kinds of things that are happening. Elders are being abused, whether they're gay or straight. There's just so many things that everybody can get behind uh, to make the community better. Mm -hmm. uh, We're all humans. It's all about human dignity. Sonny, thank you so much again. Happy holidays, and please stay uh, best friends with us here on the program and come back anytime. Call me anytime. All right, we have your number. You may not want me to. (laughs) Take care of yourself. We'll talk soon. All right, you too. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Thank you so much for joining us here on the program today. As mentioned, it is a partnership with Open House, a nonprofit organization that provides resources to the LGBTQI community. So please consider making a tax deductible or a, a donation right now by visiting openhouse-sf.org. Happy holidays. We'll continue our program tomorrow. Thanks for listening. You can catch The Michelle Miao Show Monday through Friday, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time on the Progressive Voices Network.